Alright, what's going on everyone? Welcome to another episode of Forward Thinking Founders. Before we start into today's episode, I have a quick question for you. Raise your hand if you are listening and you are a founder or you are a founder type or working on side projects. Now, if you're if you're driving, please don't raise your hand. But if you're thinking that's me, chances are you might have a co-founder and in today's world, everything's remote. And this is unfortunate for founding teams because teams work fastest when they're together, right? When you're starting something new from scratch, being in the same room has a magical kind of feeling to it. And when we're all remote, you don't really get the same thing. Well, what if I told you there's a way to get that same output, right? Get that same feeling while being remote. And luckily there is. Uh, our sponsor for the next couple of weeks for Forward Thinking Founders is Sidekick. And Sidekick is an always-on display that sits next to you, next to your computer. It allows you to work right next to your co-founder like you were in the same room. This eliminates most of the problems that you kind of get when founding a startup remotely. And you're able to move faster and, and, and kind of get stuff done in a much more efficient way like you could with if you were in the same room. And luckily, because you're a listener of Forward Thinking Founders, you get a big discount on on Sidekick devices. If you go to sidekick.video slash FTF, you get $30 off. The market rate is $50 per device. As a listener of this podcast, it is $20 per device. $30 off total per device. So go to sidekick.video slash FTF, get your devices, and get you and your co-founders working together like you're in the same room, even if you're remote. Hope you enjoy it. What is going on, everyone? Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Forward Thinking Founders. I am very grateful to have your attention, at least for the next 15 minutes of this episode. Forward Thinking Founders is a podcast where I interview pre-seed and seed stage founders about their products, what they want to build into the world, and why. We dive into how they spend their time, what's their vision, what's the origin of stories, all these things, so you can learn all about what's coming tomorrow. Because these companies haven't hit critical scale yet. Most of them haven't hit product market fit. These are just early stage companies, and the big question is, what can this be? And in this podcast, we bring that out. So with that, I really hope you enjoy your time listening to today's episode. And I've already done 200 plus, so if you like this one, listen to some of the other ones, like with Imadi Kuhn, Austin Allred, Leah Culver. We have great interviews, so check it out. Enjoy the repository, and for now, let's get into today's episode. Here we go. All right, how's it going, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Forward Thinking Founders, where we talk to founders about their companies, their visions for the future, and how the two collide. Today, I'm very excited to be talking to Leo Polovitz, who is a GP of Sousa Ventures, who is here for a segment of Partner Mondays. Welcome to the show. How's it going? Doing great. Uh, really excited to be here, Matt. Excited to, to chat with you. Yeah, I'm excited to have you here as well. And we've interacted on Twitter, and uh, I am just super stoked to learn about kind of how you think about venture and all things venture and Sousa. So I guess to start, um, let's kind of start with how you decided to break into venture, just like why venture? Let's start actually there. Why did you decide to become a venture capitalist? Um, d- deciding is probably a little bit of a, a generous way to put it. I, I definitely feel like I kind of lucked into the career without really thinking about it or knowing about it beforehand. So my background is I was software engineer for about 10 years. Um, I was fortunate enough to be a pretty early stage at a couple of companies. So I was at LinkedIn and at a location data platform called Factual at roughly the, you know, kind of 10 to 15 person stage all the way through the 50 person stage. Uh, and then between those two jobs, I was at Google for a few years. 
And uh, I really enjoyed the startup experiences. And towards the end of uh, my time at Factual, this is back in like 2012-ish, I, I was thinking about starting my own company. Uh, I had a couple ideas in mind, but I felt like I'd, I'd been at this like 12 to 50 person stage a few times that I'd never been at the you know one to three person stage. Like I didn't know what it took to get a startup off the ground. It was just a couple of co-founders in a garage. And so I wanted to learn more about that. And one of my friends from Factual was actually spinning out at the same time. And she approached me and basically said, hey, like me and a few other people, we're angel investors. Uh, we're thinking of starting a venture fund. We want somebody on the tech side to do tech due diligence as we look at companies and to see if like they're sort of, you know, technologically sound. And I, I thought to myself, oh, this is great. Like, uh, you know, it's a kind of a unique opportunity. I'd never thought about the investing side, but I could do this for a year or two. I could meet a lot of founders at that like two to three person stage that is mysterious to me. Um, and then that'll give me a lot of knowledge and lessons that I can apply when I start my own company. And so I thought I'd do venture for like a year or two and instead really, really quickly, like fell in love with the job. Um, I actually ended up not doing much on the technical side, uh, on the diligence side. I, I became just like a kind of a generalist VC pretty quickly. Um, and so, you know, now I've been at SUSE for almost eight years. Uh, we're in our third fund. It's a $90 million fund. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's been a really good experience. And, and I think the decision was for me to stay here versus uh, going back to a startup was I felt like building a fund is actually a little bit like building a startup. Uh, so, you know, you don't quite have as concrete of a product, like we're not selling SaaS software, but there is an element of like, what is our offering to founders? Like, how do we market ourselves? How do we position ourselves? Um, so I think that stuff is fun to think about because it's almost like a startup. Uh, and then I think I just really enjoy working with a lot of founders a little bit um, where, you know, maybe I can have like one or two or 3% influence on like 50 different companies uh, instead of focusing all of my time on one company. Uh, I think the, the breadth approach is more my style. So you mentioned in there that start start doing a firm, being a venture capitalist, starting something up is similar-ish to like having your own company. I think a lot of people, myself included, when they think of venture, think, oh, like all you do is just pick companies and invest in them. And that's the job where obviously there is a lot more that, that is done. Can you kind of walk me through what are some of the activities you spend your time on as a VC? And I guess um, if you're able to like the proportion of time you spend on them? Like, uh, I don't know if that's like a, a fair question, but like how much yeah. time do you spend on each activity approximately? So we have an idea of scale. Um, yeah, so there, I'll, t I'll answer the first part first and then I'll talk about the time allocation. So venture is in some ways, you know, it's not quite like a funnel, but it's a little bit like a funnel where the first step is you're trying to meet with as many good companies as you can. Uh, the second step is you're trying to kind of whittle down that list of companies to the ones that you think fit your funds investment criteria and your focus. Um, and then once you figure out like, what are the companies you want to invest in uh, a lot of times, especially these days, uh, investments are pretty competitive. And so you might have, you know, a founder raising a few million dollars and their slots, you know, there's enough room there for maybe two or three, uh, funds, but maybe like maybe eight funds are interested. Right. And so, at that point, you're, you kind of go from trying to pick an investment you want to do to, you know, trying to outcompete the other funds that also want to do that investment and trying to get an allocation for yourself. Um, and then the last step is once, you know, presumably once you get into some of those investments and some of those startups, uh, then it's all about trying to help them uh, both on the business and then also later on when they're trying to raise a series A or series B and they're trying to support them as the company grows. Um, and so each of these stages is really important. You know, I think people think a lot about the picking phase, uh, but you know, you have to have like companies to pick from. 
So actually finding companies and talking to them uh, is, is a really big part of the job. I think it's probably the most time consuming piece. Um, and then these days, as I mentioned, like because it's more competitive, there's more and more time spent on, you know, trying to work with founders, trying to explain to them like how you'd be helpful, like why you'd be more helpful than another fund or another investor. Um, you know, and, and I think that ends up being a bigger, bigger piece these days because there's so much capital in the early stage markets. Uh, in terms of time allocation, I would say, you know, probably something like half of my time is spent talking to prospective founders um, where, you know, as companies, we're not investors in yet, but we're thinking about investing. And maybe about a quarter or a third of the time is spent with founders where we already work with them. And so we're doing like kind of regular catch-up calls and property catch-up calls when there's a problem or when somebody wants help. Um, and, you know, just trying to help companies out uh, as much as we can once we're already investors. And then the other, you know, 15, 20% of the time is, uh, you know, kind of miscellaneous, right? So it's occasionally catching up with our own investors who are called limited partners or LPs. Uh, it's networking with, uh, you know, other VCs and investors where we can share deals we're looking at with each other. Uh, it's, you know, doing podcasts like this one. Um, so just kind of anything we can do to like get our name out there, um, you know, figure out ways to find, like to create more value for founders to work with and so on. Um, actually, if you, if you Google for uh, behind the scenes at a VC fund, uh, maybe two or three years ago, I wrote a blog post where I actually analyzed my calendar for a couple months and, and posted like where the time goes, uh, but it's evolved a little bit since then. That's super interesting. I will, if you're listening, make sure to do that now if you want, but not if you're driving. Um, and I'll do it when I'll do it after the pod. You said Is something about driving these days. I feel like we're all just sitting at home. So I'll be honest. I some more often than I like to admit drive with just to drive no destination just like oh gonna go on a drive for 20 minutes (laughs) um uh, which is what i do for fun in 2020 (laughs) (laughs) that actually sounds pretty good i think that's that's more fun than what i do for fun which is you know these days probably just like take walks around the house and that's about it well see i kind of i I don't even have i can't even walk around my house because i have a one-bedroom apartment with and i'm living with someone else so it's like I, I need to leave. And we luckily we have a we have a nice pool, which I like sometimes take a dip. Um I'm like kind of finding uh I'm like I guess I'm getting used to things. I don't know. We're it's just great cr- crazy times, which is actually let's kind of talk about it. Let's talk about like not talk about how, how hard things are, et cetera, but like like the market changed, right? Like like when you're when you're an investor, you're, I mean, you're looking at timing, you're looking at, at market and like the market changed, uh, not the VC landscape, but just like the market, like we're all online, consumer is different, all that stuff. How do you think about companies now with the COVID being a thing versus companies before COVID? Like how does COVID impact your investing kind of career or your, your investing activities? It's been interesting. I mean, we're now, you know, I would say almost six months into the the sheltering in place or five, six months in. And I think for, for the first month, it was super hectic. I think every founder was trying to raise, uh, you know, whether, whether they had just raised or they were going to raise in three months or they were going to raise now, everyone's trying to raise now because they thought things might get a lot worse. Um, and then it kind of quieted down for a month or two. And then I think actually the summer's just been at fever pitch, like it's just been as active as I've ever seen, which is really surprising me because it feels like, there's definitely a disconnect between like the stock market and the venture market and then the economy and kind of people's day-to-day lives, including my own. So it's been, it's been surreal to see that. I would say like our investment strategy hasn't changed too much. Uh, we actually started out distributed as a fund. So, you know, for the last few years, we've been in an office in SF, but for the first few years of Sousa Ventures, we were split between New York and SF and LA. 
And so we were pretty used to meeting founders over phone calls or video calls, but maybe not in person. Um, so that part hasn't been a terribly difficult adjustment. Uh, I think the one thing we're thinking about a lot more is like how companies look near term and what their opportunities are given COVID. And so on the venture side, a lot of times you're thinking about, you know, is this a big idea? Can it be a huge company, you know, in six or eight or 10 years? Um, and usually if the answers to those questions are yes, then like the near term also looks promising because, you know, the company makes progress towards a big idea. Uh, the more progress they make, the more, you know, the, the more likely that are a series A, a series B, grow the team. These days, I think COVID has changed that because now there's ideas that maybe in 10 years, like they look great, but in the next one year or two years, there's like very little progress they can make, right? So like, for example, anything in person, you know, maybe it's a fantastic idea for 10 years from now, but if in the next year, like nobody's meeting in person, like your company's just not going to be able to make any meaningful progress. So we're thinking a lot about, you know, whether COVID is like impacting uh, companies we're looking at positively or negatively. And I think it, it's probably a question in pretty much every pitch meeting of just like, how does the next year look for you? Um, and then versus how might the next five years look for you once once a lot of the COVID uh, side effects pass? It, it was really interesting, just like the month after, after sheltering and pace and like everyone was just kind of wondering um, what's going to happen? It got kind of dark and now it's active, more active than usual. Do you have any thesis on why this summer is just a fundraising spree? Is it that like there's more money in, in the market with like, you know, solo GPs and stuff like that? Or, like wh why, why is it so active when like maybe it shouldn't be? I, I don't know. Like why, what's your theory there? Yeah, th these are definitely theories, but a couple of the theories I have is like one, I mean, VCs have historically just like they've, they've been raising a lot over the last few years for their funds. And so I think there's a lot of capital like waiting to be deployed. Um, and I think part of what happened is a lot of VCs I know did take March or maybe April off to like focus on their portfolio, maybe step back, figure out their new investment strategy if they wanted to change it. But I think enough VCs didn't that, you know, when people kind of looked back up, uh, you know, uh, in late May, they were like, oh man, like the market's not slowing down. Like it's just, you know, it's starting to just like keep going without me. Like I better keep participating. So I think there is pressure to participate on funds and they all have a lot of capital or a lot of them have a lot of capital sitting on the sidelines. So I, I think there's pressure from that side. The other thing I've seen at seed stage is what, what I've seen at the next round, like the series A firms, some of them are comfortable writing big checks, like 10, $15 million checks to companies, even if they haven't met the founders in person. Um, but a lot of firms are not that comfortable with it because they haven't done it before. And so they're very used to like meeting in person, flying out to a founder if they need to. And so those firms, they're struggling to write $15 million checks. And the sense I get is a lot of them feel like, well, $15 million is hard, you know, a hard investment to make over, over a Zoom call. But what if I could do this over, you know, what if instead I did like 10, $1 million checks at seed. And so we're seeing a lot of series A firms come down to like seed stage and do a lot of smaller checks because they feel like, well, we could still appear active and like we can, you know, keep investing, but we're not putting as much capital at risk when like we haven't met the founder in person. So I think those are maybe two factors contributing to the, the pace of activity right now. That's very interesting. I would not have thought of that, but it makes a lot of sense for sure. It's just, it's the beauty of capital, how it can be distributed. You can write one $50 million check or 15, $1 million checks. It's, and it's all just, it's all just return on returns. So what do you think about, um, when you get a founder coming to you, um, maybe it's a cold email, maybe it's a warm intro, anything like that. Like, 
what are what do you look for in a founder? Or I guess I guess I'll actually ask like when you have a deal come across your desk, like an opportunity, what do you look for in in founders? What kind of traction, market, you know, what what's interesting to you? Yeah, I mean, I think um, we we have some like pretty pretty high level filters in terms of just like what's appropriate for us and the stage we invest in. So most of the founders we talk to are raising like two to five million dollars. Uh, not all of them, but a lot of them have some traction by that stage. Um, so on the B2C side, you have some users for your app or whatever product you're building. On the B2B side, you might not have a lot of revenue, but maybe you have you know, 100K or a few hundred K in annual revenue, or at least you have some paid pilots or you know, unpaid pilots uh, where you know, it's not just an idea, but you have like a product and you have a little bit of validation that customers will pay for it. Um, we're also focused on like US and you know, Canada and not really outside of that. And so for a lot of deals that we will come across our desk, you know, they're easy to filter out because it's like, well, we're just not a fit because, you know, we focus on the two to $5 million rounds and this company is raising one or they're raising 10, um, or maybe they're not in a country that we work in. So, so that's probably the first step and the quickest step. Um, and then after that, you know, we're looking at, I would say like the, some of the signals that we find really interesting are, you know, one, uh, and I think most VCs would say this, but like, is, is this a big market? Is it a big idea? Uh, I think we've learned over time that our best investments are ones where like, you know, even from day one, like there was a really big vision, there's a big opportunity. Um, I think it's easier to build a big company with that as a basis versus starting small and then maybe expanding over time in terms of your vision. Um, we also would like to see founder market fit. And what that means is like, whatever it is that the founder is working on, it's an area that they kind of know about and have some experience in. Uh, you know, so if you're like selling software to power plants or, you know, or, or energy companies, if you've never talked to one before and you've never worked in that space, um, you might still figure it out, but it's going to just take you a lot more like rookie mistakes and, and, and time to figure that out than somebody that has worked in those industries before. Uh, so we do like to see that sort of, uh, you know, domain experience from, in, from the founder and whatever they're working on. Um, and then I would say maybe a third thing we would look for, and I really come around on this because I didn't like it at first as an engineer, is like ability to pitch well. Uh, and so as an engineer, I, th I think I came into VC feeling like everything should be a meritocracy. If it's a good idea, like that, that's what should get funded. Um, what I've grown to appreciate over time is pitching ability really matters because the founder ends up pitching, you know, uh, their, their future employees, their investors or customers, maybe press. And, and you have to be really good at selling the vision, like getting people excited about what you're building, um, you know, getting them motivated to work with you or for you. And if you can't do that, it's, it's really hard to be, build a big company. And so that, that's another element that we really like to see. How do you evaluate salesmanship or charisma? Um, that the, kind of the last piece that you mentioned, is it a, is it a feeling um, or are there the kind of chat boxes that if they ch check off these check boxes, you know that they, they're able to pitch, they're able to sell? Yeah, I, it's a good question. And it's, I think part of it is a feeling and, and people have mentioned this litmus test of like, well, would I work for this person or would I like recommend someone else work for this person? And I think that is a good sort of gut check, right? Like if I'm talking to a founder and, you know, and this applies to them too. Like if, if one of us feels like, well, I don't really want to work with this person for the next 10 years, maybe that's like a little bit of a yellow or even red flag. Um, I think succinctness is probably a good litmus test here too, right? Where, what I've noticed is founders with like really clear, crisp visions where they can articulate where they're going, why it's the right path, why it's a big opportunity. And they can do that in a matter of like, you know, a sentence or two. 
um, that's really compelling versus somebody, and, and I probably, I'm not great at this, but like I tend to ramble on a little bit. I think if you have somebody where you ask them like what their big vision is and they sort of ramble on all over the place for five minutes, it's just like, it's just not that compelling. Um, and then when you hear that, you kind of feel like, well, you know, it's a little bit all over the place. And I wonder if like this person would be good at, you know, convincing employees to join too, if they're sort of like, don't have this like really crisp, clear vision that they can articulate well. Definitely makes sense. I, I was absolutely a rambler for a large part of my tech career and still sometimes am, but I, I do, it is, it is important to figure out because if, if ramblers, you know, they ramble versus like, if you can keep it tight, you can give you communicate a vision in a couple, couple of sentences and you're, and you're, you're on your way. How yeah. do you, and, yeah. And maybe really quick, I would say like, I think it's similar with pitch decks too, because I see a lot of pitch decks where it's like 20 slides and each slide is like two paragraphs of tiny font text. And you can, like those are actually like really hard to get through because it ends up being, you know, it's like, it's effectively like a 15 page essay spread across 20 slides. But a lot of times like the slot, the, the pitch decks to get investors and, you know, and like investors excited, but also like where, where investors see the most opportunity is, you know, it's like 10 slides. There's like five words on each slide and you read those five words and you read the 10 slides and then you walk away from the pitch deck being like, holy shit, this feels like the future. Or like, I'm so convinced that this is like the right path to, to building whatever the company's building. And so I think that like succinctness can be really powerful. And one more question on that point, cause it's almost personal. Cause like, this is something I, I've worked on and still am working on. Um, and I know many, many people are like, do you, do you have any like tips or when a founder pitches you and you hear one is rambling, one's tight, do you kind of, are you able to kind of like give any tips or notice how someone can potentially tighten things up or improve the pitch or improve a sentence? Um, I would say I think practicing with lay people is good, right? Because, you know, I, I would say like I look at enough companies where even if somebody's like a little bit all over the place, um, I'm usually familiar enough with like whatever space they're talking about that I can kind of follow the conversation Maybe I have like good reference points to get a sense of what they're talking about. Um, but I think if I sort of did the like explain it to my mom test, uh, my mom would just like probably get confused really quickly. Um, and so I think maybe pitching your startup to like people that are not in tech and trying to get a sense of like, you know, do they follow you? Or are they confused? Do they start asking questions right away? Cause they're not sure where you're going with something. I think that can be a good litmus test. Um, I think time boxing is another one, right? Which is like, you know, it's very easy to have like a 30 minute pitch because you just ramble on for a long time. And then hopefully you over time convey whatever information you wanted to convey. I think it's much harder to do something that's, you know, like a demo day pitch of five minutes or an elevator pitch of like 30 seconds. And so, especially for the shorter pitches, the more you can rehearse, like, here's a good 10, 20 second version of my pitch, or here's a good like three minute overview. Um, like because of the time constraint, you have to be, you have to be tight and focused. Um, and so I, th I think, having a kind of a semi, you know, a well-rehearsed, semi-prepared, uh, like short version of your pitch can be really good for, for being succinct and being, um, like not rambling around. I will say last year, we, when we were in Jason Calacanis's accelerator, they made us pitch. He made us pitch in front of like six investors. We had like a three minute, no, it was like a, it wasn't a two minute timer and then three minutes for Q and a, and it just, the reason is exactly what you're saying. Like, like you, and then like, if you went over, there was like a buzz or something. It was great. Like, it's just, it yeah. forced you to be tight. Um, and it kind of goes into what you're saying. Uh, yeah. And, and the QA is interesting too, because if you think about it, like, you know, if we had like three hours for questions, I would just ask you like every single question I could think of. But if we have, you know, 
20 minutes or 10 minutes or five minutes or, you know, something like that, I'm really forced to like prioritize like what's important. Right. And so I'm going to try to think about like, well, what are like the four questions that really matter? And like, these are the things I really need to know the answers to. Um, and it, but I think when you're pitching, it's the opposite, right? Where you're, you're thinking about like, what are the two or three or four things that really matter to the audience? And I just want to make sure I communicate those clearly and quickly and, you know, sort of with, with like as much force as possible. Um, and then, and then hopefully that speaks for itself. Yeah, that makes sense. How do you, what, what, what gets you over the, the edge, um, when looking at investments? Cause you look at like, you know, dozens, maybe hundreds, like I don't know, like you look at tons of deals and if I had to guess, you probably, there's like right now, I would even say right now you have, you know, 10, 20, 30 that you're looking at, but there's only one can get you over the edge and like, you know what, like, let's do this one, write the check. Is there certain things that get you over the edge um, when figuring out who to invest in out of like 20 smart, smart founders? Um, like, how do you think about that? That almost like in some ways emotional decision at the very, very end of it all. Yeah. Uh, this is a tough question to answer. It definitely, it's um, for lack of a better word, it's like idiosyncratic. So there's not like a formula where, you know, oh, it, like I, I talked about, you know, wanting a big vision and founder market fit and all these things, but it's not really a formula, right? Because sometimes we meet people with a big vision and we sort of listen to it. We're like, well, it's a big vision, but maybe it's a space we don't know. Or maybe like, you know, this is a big vision, but we think this other competitor actually has a better approach to it. Um, so it ends up being very like idiosyncratic and specific to the company. But I would say usually the company has like some superpower, right? So they might not be good at everything, but maybe like, you know, it's, it's one of the best engineering technical leaders we've met in the last six months, or maybe the CEO is just like incredibly good at selling and, you know, like has this like bold audacious vision and we think they're going to be like amazing at recruiting. Um, or maybe it's, you know, sometimes it's more industry or sector specific, right? Or maybe it's like, we've seen 20 companies in this space. We, we think it's like pretty crowded. None of the 20 companies stood out. But this 21st one, like they have a really clever approach and we're starting to see it working. And so we get excited about that. But so usually there's like one or two things that get us really excited, even if other areas are not as uh, not as mature or not as polished. And a couple couple more questions for you. What is one thing that when founders pitch you or just reach out to you, you interact with them? What do you wish more founders knew or what do you what do you wish more founders like understood about venture capital to so like maybe shoot themselves in the foot like a little less often um just based on not knowing something um i don't know if there's anything specific that sticks out i would say like as a high level principle i think some founders are like they're trying to sort of like play the system or they're trying to pitch the way that they think they like they're expected to pitch versus just trying to explain the business right so I'll see people, you know, try to create pressure where they say like, oh, like I'm in late stages with a few funds. Like, you know, they're, they're about to give me term sheets. Um, they'll name the funds. I think they're trying to create like FOMO with investors. Uh, but that usually doesn't work unless it's like, you know, unless it's really backed up with data because investors know each other. And so if you say like, hey, you're about to get a term sheet from Sequoia, it's not that hard for me to text someone at Sequoia and be like, are you talking to this company? Are you going to give them a term sheet? And if Sequoia says, I've never met them or, you know, yeah, we talked to them once, but like, it's too early for us. I think that, that the founder loses quite a bit of credibility. Um, but I think another example is like, you know, founders, founders pitching like a growth rate that they think they're going to hit that looks really unrealistic because they think it's what the investor wants to see. And like, what I really want to see is like, 
here are some numbers you think you can hit and like you have a good plan for them. Um, and I'd rather see that than like, you know, you, you multiply the numbers by 10 and it looks more impressive, but then when we dig in and like, it doesn't really make sense. Um, so I would say like, I think that's the biggest thing of like people pitching with like people saying what they think investors want to hear versus just trying to like make, like trying to, uh, you know, communicate why the business is compelling from their perspective. You actually brought us something there, which is I've actually don't know much about, which is like how funds interact with each other. Cause in some ways funds, like you mentioned in the earlier converse in the earlier conversation, like funds compete. Like if there's only, if there's three slots in a seed round, eight funds went in, like you're competing at the same time though, funds send deals to each other funds send deals upstream. So what's, can you just kind of explain to me? Cause I honestly don't know. Are funds competitors? Are they not? Is it like friendly competition? You send deals to your, like you ping Sequoia, like why would you want to tell us that, you know, can you kind of explain that to me? Cause I, I don't know much about that. Yeah, I would say it's, it's, you know, at a given stage, it's usually competition. Uh, so it's a little bit of a mix of uh, collaboration competition, but it's also, it really varies based on check size. So, you know, to break it down, like let's say a typical seed round these days is, you know, in Silicon Valley is like $3 million. And we will write checks that are one, one and a half million. So maybe we're doing like a third or half of the round. So in terms of like sharing deals, if some other fund writes like two and a half million dollar checks, we'll basically never work with them because there's not enough room for both of us in the round. So if they're in, we're not and vice versa. And so we're like, we're, we'll rarely collaborate. We'll really reach out to them in terms of like, looking at something together if the other fund writes like million dollar checks then you know it's a little bit tight but like we can both fit into a round and so you know we'll often be like oh i saw on linkedin you're connected to the founder are you talking to them or maybe the founder even said like they're talking to you do you want to compare notes um and there the the reasoning is like can we compare notes can we make can we each make decisions faster maybe there's a chance for us to work together and like you know both co-invest in the round and then with smaller investors, it's a lot easier to work together, right? So, you know, we write million dollar checks. We're often looking for like kind of small value add funds that write 200K checks, but can pitch in in some area where we don't know how to help in, right? Or maybe angel angels that can do the same thing. Uh, and so there, there's a lot of collaboration, which is angels, you know, they write a 25K check or something and they want uh, a, like a, a bigger seed fund to like set good terms and like be the kind of the point person on the investment uh, for the founder. Um, you know, the, the one that's like talking to the founder, maybe like every couple of weeks on a regular basis, whereas the angel investor might be checking in, you know, more sporadically. Um, or, you know, or there's like a smaller fund often has that same thing where they can write a small check, but it's not enough to catalyze the round. So they want somebody to help them catalyze the round. So in those cases, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, sharing and collaboration. That makes sense. I have one more and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. And this is like a very specific one. I don't know if you're able to answer because um, things move so quickly. But you just said like a typical seed round or like pre, yeah, typical seed round in, in, in SF is $3 million. I have like, and obviously some will be four, two, some four, some one, but like, can you kind of like help me understand if the typical seed round is $3 million, isn't that mean they're like diluting their company, like a, a pretty heavy, is like heavy amount in the beginning if they're not raising like a $15 million valuation? Or I guess, let me like change the question and make it a little more like, the question is when you're fundraising um, and you're a founder and you're raising a seed round, how much should a founder expect to dilute or sell in that seed round? That's probably a better way to phrase the question, um, d depending on how much you want to raise. 
I would say most rounds uh, at seed are probably 20 to 25% dilution. Um, there's usually a minority that are under 20% and a minority that are maybe like 25 to 30. Uh, but I would probably guess like 80, 90% are in that like 20, 25% range. And so, you know, for a $3 million round, you're probably looking at like a, you know, somewhere between like 11 and $16 million post money valuation. So I actually have a couple more questions about this. This is just relevant sure. to like where I'm at right now. Like, I don't know how this works. So if you're selling, tw- let's say 25%, if you're selling 25% of your company at the seed around and you're for like, let's, let's say everything just works. It's just like everything's working out for the A round. Let's say you sell like another 25%. If you're supposed to, if you're supposed to raise like seed, A, B, uh, A, B, C, D, you know, down the line and then the IPO, how is there, how is it possible there's like enough room to raise an E round or something? Or if you're selling a quarter in seed, can you kind of just like describe how that works um, and how there's enough room for these later rounds, which is way more capital? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll caveat with saying I have a lot of experience at like seed series A and then, you know, sort of the later stage you get, the fewer companies we have that have gotten to that level. So I think like, you know, series F, maybe we have like one company that's gotten there. Um, but the, the the big thing here is that the seed and series A are probably the two most dilutive rounds. Um, and then the dilution tapers off pretty quickly. So, so like your seed and A, they might each be like 20, 22, 25%. It's not, it's not uncommon for the Series B to maybe be like 15 or 20%. Um, and then after that, it's pretty common to have like 5 or 10% rounds, right? So you'd often see a Series D that's like, hey, this company raised, you know, 80 million at a billion dollar valuation. And so they got a ton of money, but it was like 8% dilution. Um, and then the other component is every time you raise money, it dilutes the previous investors. And so sometimes they have the pro rata right that lets them like kind of buy up at new price to avoid that dilution. Um, but sometimes they don't, or sometimes even if they have that right, they can't afford it because they're a smaller fund. Uh, so over time, you know, a seed fund might buy 25% or sorry, a seed fund might buy like 10% at seed. Um, and then at series A, there's some dilution from a series A investor, but the seed fund can sort of afford to like, you know, buy back that dilution. But at like a series B or C, that seed fund starts just getting diluted because, you know, they can't afford to invest at like a $600 million valuation or a $2 billion valuation. So their stake might go from 10% to 9 to 8 to 7 over time. And the reason why a seed fund is like cool with that is that the value of the, the whole pie is getting bigger. So the value of the company is growing. So then when it exits, although they own 5% instead of 10, that 5% is worth $80, billion or $80 million or whatever. That's kind of how that works out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So initially, like, I mean, for simple math, we might invest like a million dollars for 10% at a $10 million valuation. And then the company raises, you know, let's say 10 million at like, uh, you know, a $50 million valuation later on. And so we'll, we'll pay like an extra million dollars to avoid dilution or, or something along those lines. Um, but then later on, if they raise at like 200 million, 400 million, we can't really afford to do uh, Parada at that point. But, you know, so now instead of owning, you know, 10% of a, a $10 million company at seed or 10% of a $50 million company at series A, we might own like 7%, but it's of a you know billion dollar company. And so that initial million dollar investment and maybe that million dollar follow-on investment is now worth like 60 or 70 million on paper. Yeah, that makes sense. Cool. Well, I learned something for some reason. I thought that I thought that 
as you go down the round, like like series C, uh, the D round, these are you're more dilutive than the C round or A round, but it's actually the opposite because you're more proven. Why would you dilute more? There's more data to look off of, so it makes a lot of sense. Then I guess last question. Yeah. Also, just like I think the more momentum you have, uh, like the the easier it is to raise money, right? Because you're no longer selling a vision. Like, like in some ways I find it really incredible in a good way that, you know, somebody with a good team and a great idea can, can go raise like $2 million before they do anything. Right. Which is like, that's like, that's kind of a crazy amount of money. I think that's more than like the lifetime earnings of a typical person. Um, and you're doing that not because you have revenue, but because someone says, well, there's, you know, a 1% chance you could be a $2 billion company. And so I would invest at like a $10 million valuation today or a $6 million valuation today. Cause like that expected value calculation makes sense for me. Uh, but as you get to later stages, you know, a series C company might have like $30 million in revenue and they have a lot of options, uh, you know, in terms of like, even if, even if they don't raise funding, you know, maybe they're close to break even and they don't really need it. And so I think that gives them negotiating power. Um, I think there's potentially like debt financing or revenue financing if they need to like, you know, raise some money non-dilutively. Um, and, and I think also like there's just a lot more numbers to look at where somebody could be like, okay, a $30 million company growing 90% a year. You know, if I compare that to like some stock market stocks, uh, this should be worth like, you know, a billion dollars or something. And at that point, you know, the founders might not need, you know, 20% dilution and 200 million at that billion dollar valuation. Maybe they just need 50 million. And so somebody will like look at that and be like, well, this is a good valuation and I can give them $50 million. And even if it's 5% and not more, like I still think it's a good investment. Yeah, that all makes sense. Um, the last question for you, um, which is kind of open-ended, is Is there any – well, actually, no, I'll actually keep it. I'll, I'll keep it on a topic that's timely, which you actually just wrote about, and I wanted your, your final thoughts on it, and then we will call it a day. Um, so there's, the, there's this thing going on, on in VC land, which is rolling funds. You got, like, AngelList. I think AngelList pioneered this new funding model, and it's allowing – other, or sorry, a new way to collect money from LPs and it's allowing, you know, it's potentially like disrupting venture capital. I don't really know. You wrote a thoughtful thread about this. Can you just kind of bring us up to speed? What is rolling funds and like, what do you think it could do for venture? And then we'll finish on that. Sure. Um, so traditionally venture funds are, you raise one every maybe like two to four years and you spend a lot of time raising at the beginning of the fund, um, especially in the early days before you have a track record. So like as a, as a data point, I think it took us not quite a year, but almost a year to raise our first fund. Um, and so it's a lot of, you know, meetings with investors, like potential investors, their friends, their friends of friends, like it's just, you know, meeting after meeting after meeting. And it's, it's almost like a numbers game. Um, and one thing that makes that more difficult is uh, there are these rules around general solicitation for VC funds where, you can't just tweet out and say like, I'm raising a VC fund, like come talk to me if you wanna invest. Um, the SEC like frowns upon that. Um, they, you know, because I think they're, they're worried about investors being taken advantage of. And so because of that VC, you know, this VC fundraising process is pretty painful. Like, so it takes, you know, maybe the first time you do it, it takes a year. Maybe after that, it takes a few months each time. Um, but it, it's, you know, it, it's a pretty heavyweight process that takes up a lot of your time and energy. I think the interesting innovation with AngelList rolling funds is they basically figured out a legal structure where uh, now VC fund partners or like founders can uh, can effectively fundraise publicly. So they can't actually say like, hey, I'm raising a fund. 
if you want more info, like, you know, let me know and I'll send you a deck. Uh, but I think that ability to fundraise publicly will like speed up fundraising a lot. Um, I think also broadening, like who can see these funds, uh, you know, like w when we were raising a venture fund, we're basically going to our networks, our networks, networks, but it, it's very much like, you know, that's who we can approach because there's not really a good way to approach other people. Uh, but there might be a lot of other people that are interested in investing in VC funds, but don't have access. And I think rolling funds, like AngelList rolling funds will uh, broaden access, right? So now, you know, when I say like, hey, uh, I'm raising a fund and here's here are the details, uh, it's not just my network that sees it, it's like anybody. Um, and so I think, I think that'll really diversify the LP base. I think that'll make it easier for a lot of uh, first-time managers to raise their funds, um, especially if, you know, maybe they, they have like an early track record, but not enough of one to go raise from like a big institution. Um, but there's a lot of individual people that, you know, follow them on Twitter or read their newsletter or like, you know, something like that, uh, where effectively like a VC can turn an online reputation into a, a, an offline fund. So I, I think it's an interesting, really interesting development. It feels like it would be pretty disruptive, especially for like first time managers and for democratizing access to, to VC. Yeah, I'm with I'm with all of it. I am a huge fan of democratizing access to VC and just democratizing access, period. And this is a huge, a huge uh, component of that. So thanks for going into that. And thanks for coming on to the podcast. We dived into some topics that you probably talk about a lot and people know about and then some topics that like brand new to me and brand new to probably most of the listeners. So um, I just uh, appreciate being open to coming on and, and best of luck finding the next the next the next 20 unicorns over in your current fund. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. I really enjoyed the conversation and really appreciate the invite.